If you turn with me to John chapter 11. It's also printed in page 9 in your bulletins, and um, it's printed in very, very small font so we can capture all of it. Um, we skipped around in a, a couple verses to just ensure that we're going we're gonna to hit the, the main portions of this text, but allow me to read the last great miracle, at least uh, stated in the book of John. Chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now is sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you were going back there? Now I'm going to skip over to verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And this is God's word. For the past month, we've been focusing on Jesus' own claims about himself. He said he's living water. 
He says he's the bread of life. He says he's light of the world. And these claims, I mean, they're incredibly radical. So we should listen to them because they promise us life. Because we said, you know, if it's false, it's going to become readily seen. And we should dismiss not only what he says entirely, but Jesus himself. But if it's true, if, it's, if claims are true, then they are the key to a renewed life. These claims, these teachings are tied to his signs. And today we're looking at the last sign of Jesus in the book of John. The last one. It's significant. Why? Because it precipitated a cascade of events. From this point on, a cascade of events which are going to culminate in Jesus' own death, his own resurrection. Now, people outside the church, they recognize the reality of the conversions inside the church. For example, people like Rodney Stark, renowned sociologist, they'll they'll recognize the reality of the conversions that took place inside the church. What was the foundation of these conversions? They all rested on the reality of a risen Savior because no resurrection, promises are false. No resurrection, no renewal, no new life. Now it's mentioned here three times in this passage, three times that Jesus loved Lazarus. Seeing Lazarus in the grave, what do you see? He weeps. He weeps for Lazarus in this passage. And they said, see how they loved him? They were close, but they were wrong. Jesus' love is never in the past tense. It's always in the present tense. Always everlasting. His love is rich. It's the richest kind of love. His love is mighty. It's powerful. It's the most powerful kind of love. What do we learn from this passage? There are three things today. His wisdom, his comfort, his power. The delay, the delay of Jesus, that's going to show you the wisdom of Christ. The teaching of Jesus, that's going to show you the comfort of Christ. And the miracle itself, the raising of Lazarus, that's going to show you the power of Christ. First, the delay, the wisdom of Christ. In verse 3, it says here that Jesus loves Lazarus. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus loves Lazarus. Why does he wait? Think about it. Why did he wait until Lazarus died? Lazarus is this close friend of Jesus. He, Martha, and Mary, good friends of Jesus. Lazarus has fallen ill. And Jesus is right now outside. He's probably about a day or two-day journey outside of Jerusalem. Lazarus living very nearby Jerusalem in Bethany. And uh, Jesus waits two more days before he actually begins that one- to two-day journey back to seeing Lazarus. And during that time, what happens? Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus dies. But he says, it's for your sake, so that you would believe. What was he trying to teach us? What was he trying to teach us? First, it teaches us this, our state, sin. Sin is the contagious, deadly, deadly disease that has no earthly cure. Everyone's going to fall to it. Imagine a world without a cure for the common flu. In fact, if you look as early as early or as late as the 1970s, uh, civilizations have been devastated by the flu without a cure. In sin, what is this text telling you? In sin, we're like Lazarus. Verse 1, we're sick. We're sick unto death. Verse 11, it's like we're asleep. Sin makes us asleep. Verse 14, it's like we're dead. We are dead like Lazarus. We're all like Lazarus in the tomb. This is the culmination of everything Satan has done, everything the devil has done, the sum of all of his power, the sum of all of his evil. You know what this means? Sometimes Jesus is going to wait before your prayers are answered. He loves Lazarus, 
but he delays. He, in fact, delays until Lazarus is dead, and he says, so that you would believe. In other words, so that you would mature. You would mature in the faith. You know know what this means. The love of Christ is going to include, it may include trouble for you, suffering, discomfort. Yet the text shows us here that you never doubt the love of God. You never doubt the love of Jesus. Are you sick? He loves you. Are you dead? Do you feel dead? Life seems like it's over. He's weeping. He's weeping for you. It's simple and natural to think that when we do bad, bad things are going to happen to us. Likewise, you know, if bad things happen to us, then it's because we must have done something wrong. It's simple and natural to think that if we do good then, that good things are going to happen to us. So if, we've, if good things happen to us, it must be because we're living right. Now the cross, Jesus, completely blows away that paradigm altogether. Why? Because what do you see in Jesus? The most perfect man that ever walked the earth. Suffering the worst death that anyone could suffer. The answer to our meaning of suffering then is a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more complex than, than we could ever imagine. The fact that Jesus weeps in our suffering, it provides us comfort at the same time. God actually sees us. The fact that he weeps also provides truth for us. Death, suffering, it's a picture of who we are, our state, the result of sin in our lives. Like Lazarus, we're helpless, we're dead. Yet God uses, God uses the suffering. God uses this to mature us. Without suffering, what do you see? Without suffering, you'd, not, you'd never know how finite life is. Our suffering shows us we're not in control. We were never in control. Control in life is an illusion, but the thing is we do a lot to try to gain control of our lives. A lot of us are obsessed with control in our lives. We try to gain power. We try to gain wealth. That's how we gain control. If I can have power, then I feel like I'm in control of things around here. If I can gain, and we do that either in our families or we do that in our work, we do that in our relationships, don't we? That's how we do it. We try to gain wealth. Sometimes it's through sexual conquest because if I can just have this, then I know I have a sense of control in my life. A lot of us do that by uh, trying to stay young because you're starting to recognize your mortality. So you do a lot of things to try to stay young, to look young, to act young. We know, deep inside, what does this tell us? We know that the control that these things actually give us, it gives us a little bit of control. It's temporary. It doesn't last. It only lasts as long as these things last. There's a... A British journalist by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge, in his speech in 1985, uh, before he passed away, in 1985 he wrote um, or he spoke uh, with the title The True Crisis of Our Time. Very famous uh, portion. Uh, This has been said many, many times, but it's one of my favorite uh, excerpts of any speech. I thought I'd share this with you because it's all about our quest for control, the illusion of control. We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter revolutions. Wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I have heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I have seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I have heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as being wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. 
I've seen America, wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world, put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England, now part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep their motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. The death of Lazarus shows us that control never lasts. We've never had it in the first place. The death of Lazarus teaches us that sin leads to death, and death is the end. Today, in our world today, we're taught to embrace death. You watch movies in today's world, Make death your friend. Connect with death. Understand death. Death is a natural part of life. But the Bible never teaches us, never teaches us that death death is natural. Never teaches us that death is a natural part of life. Death is not your friend. Death is the enemy. Death is evil. Death is horrible. It is a heart. We should be afraid of death. Death intends to beat you down until you're left mourning and weeping and stripped away, left to nothing. But the text also shows us the wisdom of Christ. The disciples, they understand the urgency. They understand death. They're middle-aged people. They understand the situation. Lazarus is gravely ill. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. They saw the urgency. But Jesus intentionally waits. It says he delays. He intentionally waits two more days. And then he begins a two-day journey back to see him. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Here's why, here's why he waits. Had Jesus gone, had Jesus gone, the disciples came to him and said, the one you love is sick. That's the word for Mary and Martha. They said, the one you love is sick. Jesus says, You're, get, get your things, hurry up, let's go. We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go, let's go, let's go. Who would be in control? He wouldn't be in control. Death would be in control. The enemy would be in control. Had he bowed to the urgency, he would be bowing to the power of death. Death would have the ultimate victory. Death would be in control. Jesus would be submitting to the power of death. Rather, he says, verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This sickness will not end death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus has power over death. That's what he's saying. Jesus is not going to bow to the power of death, to the call of death. He says, even my own life, I'm going to lay it. The only way that I can die is if I lay it down on my own accord. That's what Jesus says. No one can take my life from me. I have to lay it down. I have to give it up. Jesus delays to the point where the human mind can no longer conceive God's faithfulness. We live like that sometimes. We feel like there's no hope sometimes in our lives. You look at a certain situation and you say, it's gotten to a point where there's nothing God can do. God's faithfulness has walked away from me. What does this mean? Through suffering, 
two things can happen. Either one, you're either going to become harder and you're going to grumble because you don't have control. Because you've, you've lost control. And you're gonna, it's going to make you hard. It's going to make you grumble. And what you're going to do is you're going to start to compensate for what you think you lack. So you're going to start to work hard. You're going to try to gain wealth. That's what leads to greed. That's what leads to our lusts. That's what leads to our vanity. The desire to become perfect. All the way, we're trying to fight death. That's what we're doing. Or what you're going to do is you're going you're to become tender. You're going to become softer in realizing how finite life is. How, how fine and how weak, how frail our lives are. And this is going to humble you. The Bible, it teaches us that suffering is either going to make you more of a person or it's going to make you less of a person. It's going to make you more of a person because you see your limitations. You finally see who you really are, your true self, and you can rest in God's love or it's going to make you less of a person because you're going to try to fight death. And your soul's going to start to corrode. And you're going to become bitter and angry because you're going to start to slow down. And death is going to start to pick up. That's suffering. But it's never a sign of rejection. And if you see why Jesus delayed, you can see the wisdom of Christ. You can see the love of Christ. It's going to lead you to trust. You've got to pray your fears. You've got you to pray your struggles. You have anxieties. You've got to pray those anxieties. You have needs, you gotta pray your needs. You gotta offer your needs. He already knows. He already knows them. Pray your weaknesses. Mary and Martha, what did they do? They sent word to Jesus, right? That's prayer. The one you love is sick. And they waited. They sent word to Jesus. They didn't say, the one who served you well is sick. They didn't say, the one who obeyed is sick. They said, the one you love, the one you love, they appealed to Jesus' love because they knew. That's the delay. That's the meaning of the delay. Second is the teaching, the teaching of Christ. This is the counsel and the comfort that comes from Jesus. Verse 19, it says here, many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. In other words, they were a pretty prominent family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, a lot of Jews had come out to see them. It meant that they were pretty prominent. They had a lot of friends. Their relationship uh, network was very, very large. But hearing that Jesus was coming, Martha actually leaves all that behind. He, she goes out, and she goes out to see Jesus. And Jesus says to her, what? Your brother will rise again. And Martha's response is, he will rise again. I know. He will rise again. In the resurrection, the last day. Martha believes. What is she saying by that? Martha believes that one day there's going to be an end to death. One day, one day, all injustice, all that is wrong with the world, all of our pain, all that, is, uh, all that is sinful, all of that one day, death itself, is gonna shrivel up. It's gonna be turned on its head. She believed that. Everything one day is gonna be restored. One day, everything's gonna make sense. Martha was looking to tomorrow. She's saying, I know that's gonna happen. She trusted, she had faith in Christ that that would happen. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Martha was looking to tomorrow. Jesus wasn't doing that. Jesus was talking about the present. How do you know that? This is the teaching. And it's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Where I am, death turns to new life. Death is going to turn away. Where I am, death comes to an end. Where I am, mourning is going to turn to joy. 
not just at the last day. Think about the pain. Every one of us, every one of us collectively, I can, that's one, I'm not confident of many things, but I'm confident of this. Every one of us has a deep-rooted pain. You can admit it or you don't admit it, but we all have something that's stirring that just nags and, it, and we struggle with these certain specific things. And the thing is, Jesus says, where I am, that pain will shrivel up. It will go away. It will turn around. It will run away. Not just on the last day. Not just at the end. I am the end. I'm standing at the tip of the world where I am. Everything else has come to an end. All you've got is me. I'm the sum of all of your hopes. I'm the sum of everything that you've ever longed for. You're putting your hope in this. It's the wrong thing. It's not the end. It's going to shrivel away with all other things. But I am everlasting. I am the sum of everything that you've ever hoped for, everything that you've ever longed for. That day when all the wrongs are going to come undone, that day has come. That's what he means when he says, I am the resurrection. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? It doesn't take work to believe. He says, you know, he says to uh, Martha, do you believe this? It doesn't take work to believe. If you're trying hard to believe, you don't believe. It doesn't take any work. He says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die, verses 25 to 26. And then he says, do you believe this? It's an invitation to come to Jesus. Come to me, he says. Place your trust in me. Are you hurting? Place your trust in me. When you die, you will never stay dead. You're going to rise again. Your suffering and your pain, it's going to succumb to new life. You're going to have a new body. You're going to rise again. You're going to be renewed, he says. He says, I'm the resurrection. But he also says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You're going to rise again, but into a new life. It's not going to be the same miserable existence that we often see here. That's not what he says. The Greek word for life here, just as we've been studying the last several weeks, is what? It's Zoe. Zoe. He says, I'm the resurrection and the Zoe. I'm the fullness of life. I'm not just your sustenance. I'm not just bread and water and light. I am the Zoe, the fullness. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world, he says. He's not just talking about what can sustain you. He's talking about having fullness of joy, fullness of life. In other words, Lazarus is going to die again. Poor guy, he's going to die again. But the fullness will remain you'll still have the fullness. Many people fear that letting Jesus be himself in their lives is going to ruin their lives. That's, a, that's why we're afraid to come to Christ at times. We're afraid that if we let Jesus be himself in our lives, what's going to happen is um, it's going to reduce our options, it's going to reduce our potential, it's going to reduce our, our freedom, when in actuality, Jesus is saying, I am the source of your options. I'm the source of your freedom. I'm the source of your potential. That's what he's saying. Lazarus himself is going to die again, but fullness, you will have increased options, increased potential, increased freedom when Jesus is himself in your life. You're going to experience a new you. You're going to experience a fuller version of who you really are. What areas in your life right now is Jesus bringing fullness? You know how it starts? It starts with suffering. It starts with suffering. Think about Joseph. Think about Mary. You know, when Jesus was born, they were living a very, very normal life. And one day, the angel appears before Mary and turmoil enters into her life. 
Turmoil enters into Joseph's life. What does that tell you? The closer Jesus comes into your life, there's going to be turmoil. For those of you who are looking for a very comfortable, easy life, you can't escape it. If you want that, and at the same time you want Christ in your life, it's going to get, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble. You're going to feel it even more because of what you desire so much and yet who Christ is. Jesus is saying, stop relying on these sources of comfort. I am the comfort you're looking for. I am the resurrection. I am the life. What does this mean for us right now? New life in Christ means this. Where there was once hardness, there can be softness. Where there was once blindness, you didn't see yourself, you had a hard time acknowledging and, and, and uh, confessing who you really are, now there's light. Where there's hunger, now there can be a filling, a wonderful filling. You know, I spoke to a woman a while ago. Um, She came to me one time and she said, you know, I need some counsel because today I just don't feel very beautiful. You know why? It's because for years and years, you sought after beauty on the outside. That's what the culture tells us. That's what the world tells us. And you buy into it. And the thing is, you don't just buy into it, you believe it. It's because deep inside we believe that. And so we seek it. And you spend most of your life focusing on the exterior of your life and you realize your insides have corroded. Your insides have corroded and you're empty. And you focused on your face and you focused on your figure and you're trying to fight death. And you realize now, the effects of sin, you're aging. You're aging. And, And there are other people that are rising up to take your place. You're fighting the effects of sin and you're losing. One day, the Bible promises you're going to be able to rejoice in your own beauty, the fullness of who you are. The fullness in its perfection without any hint of pride, without any hint of insecurity. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel working in our lives. That's spirit working in our lives. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Remember, it's not I will be resurrected. It's not, I was the resurrection. He is the resurrection. It means right now, in the present, he is the fullness of life, the means to that new life for you, for me. Lazarus is just an example. Lazarus is just uh, an example, a momentary example. It's, not a, it's a very minor miracle in the long run, but this passage serves as hope. Why? Because that life, no matter how dead you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, that life can still be for you. Friends, that's an amazing, amazing truth. It's the only reality. It's the only truth. Uh, it's the only promise of that kind of reality. Um, this is what makes Christ's work for us very personal, you know, because it's actually for us personally. We can actually do business with Jesus. Just like Lazarus, we're in the grave. That's what the text says. On one hand, we're dead. We're in the grave. We're flatlined. But just like Martha and Mary, we're helpless at the same time. We're, we're, we've seen the tomb. We've experienced incredible loss, disappointment. But death is not Martha's friend here. Martha would never try to embrace this. Mary would never try to embrace this reality. There are people who live right now as if they'll never be free. You know, right now, if you take Jesus in, if you see who Christ is, you can actually be free. There are people right now here who will never feel like they'll ever be free from their hurts, they feel like they'll never be, feel free from, uh, uh, from their mistakes that they've made or um, regrets that they have. They're in the grave. You're living like you're in the grave. That's what's happening. Jesus has come. 
He said he's the resurrection and the life for you. That means you can be free of your guilt. That means you can be free of the debts that you feel like you've summed up in life. You're free from the mistakes that you've made. Some of us, we've suffered some horrible, horrible, just one mistake ruins everything. The Bible says here, we can be free. We can be free from these things. You've got to hear his counsel. You've got to trust his words. You ever been to a funeral? You can't just, no, no random person can just say these words. Christ, only Jesus can say this. What he's saying is, I will not let death, I, I can't just let death have the final say in your life. I can give you a new life, free from all these things. You know, sometimes it feels more comfortable to stay dead. It's a lot easier sometimes to just hold on to the pain. For some reason, it's like that. We're built that way. But if you do that, you're going to continue on the decay. You're going to continue on the decay in your life. That's the, Mary part, that's the Martha part of the teaching. Now, now the Mary part. She falls at Christ's feet. It's an amazing act of uh, lack of dignity on her. She sacrificed her dignity. Jesus had literally been walking for one to two days. She falls at his feet in a dignified position. She's unhappy. She's incredibly sorrowful. She's in mourning. She's in grief. And yet she still lowers herself because she knows who Jesus is. There's no power play. There's no, you owe me. You know, if you've been here, that's not, that's not the tone here. If you actually read the text, it's not the tone. She's falling at his feet. She knows who Jesus is. She doesn't act as, as if God owes her something. And Jesus, seeing Mary, what does he do? He, he's taken to the grave. And what happens? Verse 35, he weeps. Why? Why does Jesus weep? All around him, all around him is death. All around him at that moment is mourning. Everything around him, the smell of death is in the air. He's taken to a grave. He's grieving at the instance of death at its best. Death is on, is on all cylinders here. He sees death and he's staring it in the eye and he sees the havoc that it's raised. It's hurt his people. It's destroyed his people. All of his people are falling. They're crying. They're mourning. And Jesus, so moved, so compelled by his love for Lazarus, his love for this family, seeing what death has done, begins to weep at the cost. One of the occupational hazards of being a parent, for those of you who are parents, is that when you have children, you're never going to be happy. My guess is, I don't have children, we're working on it. You're never going to be happy unless your child is safe. You're never going to be happy unless your child is, is happy. Right? That's the, one of the occupational hazards. It means that your happiness is now, you're never going to be free ever again. If you ever want to know, you're never going to be free. You think, 18, I can kick them out. It's not going to work that way. Unless they're happy, you will always be in pain. So your happiness is going to be knit into their happiness. Your joy is going to be knit into their joy. What's this showing you here? Why does Jesus weep? Because he's looking at Lazarus. And he's weeping. Why? Because Lazarus is dead. Sin has taken its toll to the end. And, and his happiness being knit into the happiness and joy of his children. Gone. He's weeping. The Western world has told us they've forgotten uh, what it's like to really mourn. If you ever go to a, a Western-style wedding, uh, funeral, you know, you go to a funeral here in, in Philadelphia, people are solemn. They wear black, they come together, and they try to mourn very, very quietly. You go to an Eastern funeral, it's not like that. 
You go to an Eastern funeral, in some cultures they're willing to throw their bodies onto the grave and mourn. People all around are mourning. We've forgotten the art of what it means to mourn. Here we're taught to internalize our pain. Not Jesus. Here he weeps and it's visible. He's weeping. At the cost. Why? You only weep for the things that you value. If you didn't value, you wouldn't weep. You only weep for the things that you treasure. What does this tell you? You're Christ's treasure. Jesus' weeping and his mourning is so significant. Why? Because it teaches us how much we actually matter to Christ. You actually matter. It's not just that you matter. You are his treasure. You are his children. His happiness and joy are inextricably. You can't tear them apart. They're knit into you. Happiness and joy are knit into you. You can't tear it apart. What does this mean? It means that this can be the hallmark of your humility and confidence. If you think about it, your humility can be tied into this. Jesus mourns for you. Why? Because you did nothing to deserve his care and his love for you. But at the same time, he mourns for you. It can be the source of your confidence, the source of your joy. We try to take confidence in our world today, in the 2000s, what we do, what we're becoming. Jesus says, take joy, rest in me. That's how you find rest. Rest in me. Your identity's in me. Let that comfort you. Let that be, when you think about your grief and your pain, let that comfort you. But it also means you can pray your grief. You can pray your pain. You know, you're disappointed. That's not the time to hide away. That's the time to pray. Show Jesus your bitterness because he sees it. He knows it. It means every single time that you have bitterness, he's weeping. He's mourning for you. Every single time you're discontent, you're angry, and you're in pain, pray it through. He hears you. He's the only God who can hear. And he's in pain. He shares your pain. Now, that's the teaching. That's the comfort. The miracle. This shows us the power of Christ. And this is amazing. Lazarus is going to, we know, Lazarus comes back to life, right? It's a minor miracle. Why? Because Lazarus is going to die again. But in order for us to live forever, someone else has to die. At the end of the chapter, um, Caiaphas, he's the high priest, he says, he prophesies, he says, it's Jesus who's going to have to die. So they plot from this point on, a series of events takes place, and they plot to arrest him, and they plot to kill him. That's what it says at the end of chapter 11, right? Why do they do this? What he does is so remarkable. It begs a response. And that response, you see in chapter 11, the latter part of him, verse 45 and on, either people put their faith and hope in him or they plot to arrest him. And you have to make the same decision. You have to make the same exact decision. Either you will put your faith and your hope and your trust in him or you will arrest him and you will plot to kill him yourself. You can't say, oh, what I've learned from all this is he's just a good teacher. Why? Because what he demands... What he demands is so much. It's impossible unless you are in him. The call is too great. It's too much. You're either going to have to dismiss him altogether or you have to take him in, place everything you've got into the heart of Christ. He raises Lazarus to life. It's an amazing power. Neither Martha nor Mary expected this. Obviously, Martha thought he was talking about the end times. But Jesus, what does he do? He prays to the Father. And he's heard. He calls Lazarus by name. Scholars joke, you know, commentators joke that he said, Lazarus, come out. 
And he specifically called Lazarus' name out because if he said, come out, all the tombs would have opened up and all the dead bodies would have risen. You know, the power of God, the power of Christ. This is our hope. Amazing power. Why? In order for Lazarus to leave the tomb, someone has to enter in. In order for Lazarus to rise up, someone has to fall down. In order for Lazarus to live again, someone has to die. Somebody has to die. That was Caiaphas. Caiaphas said, Jesus is the one that has to die. Jesus was so deeply moved. Why? Because he knew that this was going to cost him. It was going to cost him his life. As Jesus is preparing to give Lazarus life, what is he doing? He's substituting his own. As he raises Lazarus, he's virtually burying himself. Why do we know this? Because he waited two days before he entered Jerusalem. This is the last time he will enter into Jerusalem because from the moment he steps foot, the plotting, all the people who wanted to kill him, all the people who plotted to arrest him are ready to go. He knew that by answering Lazarus' call in death, he would be sacrificing his own life. Now, he didn't have to do that. He was God, right? He could easily just say, Lazarus, uh, oh yeah, he's better now. Don't worry about it. He could have moved on. He intentionally went back into Jerusalem. This was all part of the mission. This tells us an amazing part about Jesus' mission. His hope, what his hope was, he went to do far more than raise Lazarus from the dead. The miracle is what he does for his own people like you and me. Throughout this whole passage, there's no hint of fear up until this point. If you read the book of John, up until this point, no hint of fear, no anxiety. In the face of death, Jesus has no anxiety. In the face of angry people, no anxiety. In the face of the pressure and the requests and the demands, in the, in the face of weeping and grief and the mourning, in the face of his disciples who would soon abandon him, no anxiety. In the face of sin, in the face of Satan, in the wilderness, no anxiety. Complete, utter reliance on Christ. Look at the resilient love of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Christ. Look at the assuring hope that we have in Christ. Look at the sacrifice of Christ. Yet the night he was betrayed, Jesus cries out, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. What he's saying, in other words, is he's reflecting on everything that's about happening. Not just the nails. Not just the crown. He's thinking about God forsaking him. His glory forsaking him. And it overwhelmed him to the point of death. On the cross, Jesus takes everything we deserve so that we could take everything that Jesus deserved. He dies. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this. When I prayed about Lazarus, I waited, and then I prayed, and then you heard. But here I am. I'm praying. You're waiting? You're waiting? And I'm not heard. You've grown silent. On the cross, Jesus is saying, it's my time to die. You didn't answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I had control. I am your son. I I am the king. And now I'm disowned. In fact, this is the only passage. My God, my God is the only time in the Bible where Jesus does not refer to God as his own father, what is he saying? I've become disowned by you. I no longer have control. I've lost control. He says, my God, my God. The doublet, he repeats it. It shows emotional content. What he's saying is, I'm mourning. Now, I'm the one that's mourning. Death is literally having its way with me. My God, my God, I'm in an urgent state. Will you come? Yet your faithfulness has left me. I've become finite. 
I've become weak. I've become like Lazarus. I've become rejected. I'm praying my fears. I'm praying my, uh, my sorrow, and yet I'm not heard. I once had fullness of life. I am the resurrection, and I am the Zoe life, and yet now I've become empty. I'm not just seeing loss. I'm physically and cosmically struck down. You may doubt that God loves you sometimes. There are times that we doubt. You would never doubt that God loves his own son, Jesus. And what did he send Jesus to do? What did he do with his love for his son? He sent him to die for who? For us. We are Christ's treasure. Jesus turned death on its head by dying himself. Jesus turned suffering on its head so that our suffering actually can have meaning. This is why we can wait when we pray. Sometimes it seems impossible. In our circumstances, sometimes it seems immeasurable. The wait, but we can be assured that God absolutely hears us. We can trust his wisdom. We can trust his delay. Why do we know that? Because Jesus was shattered. Jesus was shattered. So we know that whatever we're praying about, we want restoration. The Lord promises that restoration in Christ. Pray your fears. Pray your mourning. Pray your your worries. Pray your anger, your suffering, your, your discontent. Even in death, for Christians, you know, death is the enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. For Christians, uh, the worst thing that can happen to a person, death, is the best thing that can happen to a Christian. Why? Because what you're saying is that your sins, my sins will never hold me down. You know, there's an old saying, you know, you you can tear me down, you can beat me, you can kill me, you can mock me, you can insult me, you can tear me down, you can torture me, you can destroy me, but you will only remake me. You will only complete me. You can consume me all you want. You will only remake me. You will only complete me. That's our hope. That's the hope we have in Christ. Do you believe? My friends, do you believe this? Can we pray? Let's pray.